Right, let's go on to your next patient. The next patient is a 78-year-old female, never smoker, in her usual state of excellent health until April of this year, when she presented with a non-productive cough and increasing dyspnea on exertion. She was initially treated by her primary physician with steroids and inhalers, but her symptoms persisted. And on July 29th of this year, she had an abnormal chest X-ray and a subsequent CAT scan, which showed total obstruction and collapse of the right upper lobe with a large right perihilar mass and multiple subsonometer left pulmonary nodules, as well as a two-sonometer subcarinal lymph node. On August 9th, the bronchoscopy showed atypical cells consistent with adenocarcinoma, but was insufficient for mutation studies. So a subsequent PET scan was consistent with the above, as well as a right supraclavicular and a right epiphrenic lymph node. MRI of the brain was negative. So to get more tissue from mutation studies, we subsequently had her undergo a mediastinoscopy with an endobronchial ultrasound biopsy of a right paratracheal node showing an EGFR exon 19 mutation. She was subsequently started on perlotinib, and we saw her again today in follow-up after she's been on erlotinib for approximately six weeks' time. Current plans are to have her undergo a repeat PET-CT evaluation at eight weeks' time and follow up with me thereafter. In general, she's tolerated the erlotinib quite well. She's had some diarrhea. She's had a mild fluctuating rash, some improvement of her overall sense of well-being, and her physical exam today was totally unremarkable. Now, you mentioned that she had a cough and dyspnea when she presented. I don't know whether that was related to the tumor or not, but do you think it was related, and has it changed in the last six weeks? The cough has improved. The dyspnea has really not, Neil, so it's hard to know. You know, initially, I felt absolutely that was what was responsible for her because she had been in excellent health, and these symptoms were required at the same time of her current diagnosis. So I have to believe there's a connection, but we'll see how her scans look. So Ruggieri, what were your impressions of her today, and what about the rash? So I think the main point of this patient and the way Dennis approached her is the fact that even though a diagnosis of adenocarcinoma had already been made on a previous sample, and he pursued additional tissue for the sole purpose of obtaining molecular studies which in this patient obviously had a dramatic impact on her management and will have on her overall prognosis. And this is something that we can't emphasize enough. You know, Dennis and I were talking about this, and I just raised the question, how many physicians, you know, practicing oncologists do you think would have done the same thing? And he was surprised by the question, thinking that almost everyone would have done the same thing. And my guess is, probably less than half of practicing oncologists would have subjected this patient to another procedure to get EGFR testing. I think also the question, I mean, I don't know, as you look at her, would you have considered chemotherapy? I mean, she's 78 years old, chemotherapy in BEV and her if the mutation testing was negative. I probably would have, Neil, although it was one of those eureka moments because I really, really would have preferred, obviously, erlotinib. And so waiting for her mutation studies to come in and seeing them come across my desk that day, I mean, that's one of those great moments that you feel a real good sense of relief because, you know, we would have a targeted, much more benign therapy to offer her than, 
likely chemo plus or minus radiation given that totally collapsed right upper lobe. Although I must say on her exam, you wouldn't know that she'd lost that right upper lobe because she's got pretty good breath sounds throughout. So, Ruggieri, any impressions about her dermatologic toxicity and diarrhea she's had with erlotinib? What did you hear today? And how do you approach this? Do you do anything preventively, for example? You know, so we actually had a nice conversation about this as well. It's interesting because this lady, if she were on a clinical trial, she probably would have grade one toxicities, you know, at the most, both dermatologic or GI or systemic, et cetera. So she wouldn't be captured, you know, under what we recognize as more relevant or reportable toxicities. And yet you can tell by talking to her and seeing her that this drug has an effect on how she feels and some other side effects that are perhaps, you know, more than just a nuisance. I mean, she has skin dryness. You know, she talked to us about that. She has those typical, you know, the so-called paper cuts, you know, on the tips of her fingers that are probably to some extent precipitated or aggravated by the drug. Her hair is thinning, you know, again, a side effect that most people don't necessarily associate with their lotnib. And I think we hear more and more, especially in elderly women who complain that her hair is thin on this drug. You know, some issues with appetite, even though that may have preceded, you know, the use of the erlotinib just because of her disease, but her taste almost seems to have changed in terms of what she likes or doesn't like to eat. So just a variety of mild but pervasive side effects that we don't typically associate and that were not captured in the clinical trials. So have you done anything therapeutically for her skin at all, Dennis? Moisturizers, Neil, and some topical clindamycin gel for a few spots that were particularly troublesome. But she's managing, and I don't think she really needs more than that, especially seeing her today. Today, she was actually a bit better than she was dermatologically the last time I saw her. So I think she's got this ongoing chronic sort of waxing and waning but manageable dermatologic toxicity. So what's her lifestyle, her family situation, and what's her state of mind? A very devoted family. Just the husband came today, but every other time, the two children were with her as well. Her state of mind, I think, is pretty good. I mean, a fair amount of stress. She would like to be doing more. She would like to have more energy. The fatigue factor, which I think is partly her disease, partly stress, is wearing her down a little bit. You know, when we had that eureka moment, as I was telling Rogerio, the day they came in that we found out about her mutation... They were so excited, they couldn't wait the two weeks to get the erlotinib through her mail-in pharmacy plan. So they went out and spent $5,000 at the local pharmacy to get her erlotinib because they didn't want to even wait a day to start. So they were very excited, very thrilled. Today, I think just sort of falling into a pattern of hoping that she's responding, recognizing that there's a real likelihood that she will, but that she may not. And I think anxious about the results of this first evaluation scan. So, Ruggiero, maybe you can look into your crystal ball and give some maybe guesses or predictions about what's going to happen with this lady over the next couple of years. So, I think we can be reasonably optimistic about her CAT scan in two weeks. You know, she seems like she is responding to the treatment, at least based on the clinical symptoms that she had at presentation. And she's also got statistics on her side. And obviously, yes. So, and then besides, we know from the studies that 
progression-free survival in mutated patients treated with erlotinib ranges from 9 or 10 to 13 or 14 months, depending on the study that you look at. And so that's a remarkable number. And I think that's what we would be looking at. Obviously, not if, but when she eventually develops resistance, then it will be a different ballgame. I also think it's an interesting discussion we had this morning when we were talking about this patient is in mutated patients, how strongly do we feel about a dose of 150 milligrams? And I know people who feel that these patients can respond and fare just as well with lower doses with less toxicity. So this is an interesting conversation. Do you ever, in a patient who's stable and doesn't, quote, need an immediate response, Rogerio, actually an older patient, maybe somebody you're concerned about toxicity, literally start out at a lower than 150? Patients with mutated Mm -hmm. tumors? Yes. What dose would you use? Well, so elderly patients, and especially patients with mutated tumors, I sometimes start at 100 milligrams. I've seen patients at 150 who had such tremendous difficulties in the first two weeks that mandated the discontinuation of the drug, and it took us a while to get them back you know, into shape. And so I sometimes will use a lower dose to begin with. On the other hand, you know, as Dennis and I talked about today, I try whenever possible in a good performance status patient to still start with 150 milligrams, but I have, as he does, a very low threshold you know, to lower the dose whenever that patient runs into trouble. So if this patient or her family, before they got the mutation results back, Rogerio had said, okay, you know, we've been doing some reading, knowing that I'm a non-smoker with metastatic adenocarcinoma, what's the chance I'm going to have an EGFR mutation? What's the chance I'm going to have an EML4 ALK translocation? So for a Caucasian never smoker, if you look at the data from several of the studies that have been published, that probability ranges from 35 to 50%. That's for EGFR, right? Correct, for EGFR mutation. For an ALK rearrangement, that number is less in the overall population. I think we're now at a, used to be 4 or 5% when the rearrangement was initially described. If we look at the presentation by Mark Chris at the most recent ASCO, looking at data from the Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium, the number was 7%, and it's probably higher in never smokers. One more question. Ruggiero, as you said, the likelihood is this woman's going to have a response, and that at some point in time, maybe over a year from now, maybe is going to have disease progression How would you think through that situation when it occurs? For example, let's say she has a good response and then is slowly progressing. How would you approach her non-protocol therapy? And are there any research avenues out there that look promising for this situation? So most of these, if not all of these patients, will eventually develop resistance to EGFR inhibition. And many of these patients do that on the basis of mutation, such as T790M. Others will do so by overexpression of the MAP pathway. And a lot of the clinical research nowadays is focused on trying to circumvent these mechanisms of resistance. And there are a variety of agents and clinical trials testing these agents for patients who have mutated tumors who were on EGFR TKI for a respectable length of time 
and now have resistance. So I think this is truly an area that's changing every month. And within 12 to 24 months from now, I think we will have more options than we have today. Outside of a clinical trial, these patients still respond quite well to chemotherapy. In fact, if we look at the IPAS data, the response rate in EGFR-mutated patients was twice as high as the response rate in wild-type patients. So I think off-study, it's the most reasonable step. The question comes in, do you maintain the EGFR inhibition throughout you know, chemotherapy, or do you take patients off the erlotinib, treat with chemo, and then use the erlotinib you know, later on after a period of rest, so to speak. And then I think that's evolving. There's data from Memorial in a very, very small subset of patients indicating that maybe we shouldn't stop the EGFR inhibition, even if we start chemotherapy, and even in the setting of documented progression. I sometimes will take a different approach and stop the drug for a while, treat with chemo, and at some point in the future, then reintroduce the drug because patients also do well with rechallenge of EGFR inhibition later on. Could you comment on the data that was presented at ASCO looking at the so-called irreversible EGFR TKI afatinib combined with cetuximab in patients progressing on erlotinib? So I think of the clinical trials that are ongoing, this is one of the most promising ones and the one that I think received the most attention and it's being done in a limited number of institutions. It's the combination, as you said, of an irreversible inhibitor plus cetuximab based on pretty sound preclinical rationale. And in patients with documented T790 mutation, the response rate, if I'm not mistaken, was in the order of 30-some percent. And this is obviously unprecedented and at a point right now that some are not only proposing a phase three study, which would be my recommendation, but others are beginning to question if this is not a regimen that should be used in clinical practice. Anything else, Dennis, you want to say about this patient and her overall global situation? No, I'm just hopeful that we'll see a response. I'm always trying to think one step ahead. It's sort of like a chess game. So actually, Rogerio and I did have that conversation about what to do you know, eight, nine, 10 months down the road when she invariably will progress. And, you know, hopefully those resistance studies will be much more mature and we'll have something available commercially. One thing we talked about was it's been hard to get patients on resistance trials. There aren't that many trials out there that are, you know, within a reasonable geography that we have access to. So I think there is a real need to sort of geographically spread out some of these trials and give us better access to them. Because the question does become, would you go to a trial as a next step or would you go to chemotherapy? And without a trial available, you would need to go to chemotherapy. So it kind of also leads into the issue of use of chemotherapy in older patients. This lady's 78, you know, obviously you have a lot of patients who are older than that. How do you approach the choice of chemotherapy in the so-called very elderly? And then I'll ask Rogerio to comment, particularly in terms of some of the work he's done. Well, I look at their physiologic age. Though she's 78, you know, up until this point in time, she was really in excellent health. And I probably physiologically 
a somewhat younger woman. But even at age 78, the data now is that combination chemotherapy does have a survival advantage. And you look at the study that was recently done looking at carboplatin and weekly taxane. And the response rates to progression-free and the overall survival was better. And so I do give chemotherapy in older folks if they can tolerate it. If their PS is two or less, then I think you're hard-pressed. But if their performance status is acceptable, I think carboplatin and a weekly taxane is a good choice with a good response rate and a good track record. And that was actually a big highlight at the last ASCO meeting. So, Rogerio, what about this question, and in what situations, if any, will you use just one agent? So I think Dennis summarized the data very well. I think the French trial you know, validated what many other studies had shown in subset analysis, either retrospectively or prospectively. And I happen to be a fan of that regimen if I choose to use a taxane, I think the weekly schedule with the carboplatin on day one is a very convenient and tolerable regimen for use in these patients. I wonder, however, what would be like to use a regimen such as carboplatin and pemetrexate, for example, in elderly patients. And I know that this is being widely used in the community. And my sense is that it's probably just as well tolerated and the efficacy would also be the same, if not slightly better. So, and I think we do have options nowadays for carbo-based doublets that didn't really exist in the past that have made this decision between single agent and combination chemo much easier, you know, for the majority of patients. Now, once you get above 80 and, you know, mid-80s or except for those truly exceptional patients who are very robust and have no comorbidities, then I become a little bit more cautious. Just in general, I tend to be more conservative in octogenarians, and especially those who have comorbidities, even if their performance status is still acceptable. What about the issue, Rogerio, of BEV in older patients? I see this come up, you know, colon cancer, all kinds of cancers that people sort of almost reflexly start to back down, even if they don't really have any comorbidities. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe they're thinking there's more likely to be cardiovascular morbidity. I don't know. But what about this issue of BEV in the older patient? Yes. Yeah, so in the lung cancer field, then we have the subset analysis of 4599, looking at elderly patients defined in that subset analysis as being 70 or older. And Number one issue that came out of that analysis was that the efficacy did not seem to be exactly the same as was seen in the overall population. The response rate was higher, the PFS trended better, the overall survival, however, was not statistically significant in the elderly population. I still believe that this isn't, however, so much of an efficacy issue. I think the numbers were relatively small in that subset analysis, and I'm not convinced that that's the problem. However, on the other hand, toxicity was substantially worse in the elderly population. And mind you, even in that subset analysis, the median age of the elderly group was only 74. So even though everybody was above 70, the median age was still 74. So not many people, 78 like your patient, or 82, for example, treated with bevacizumab. So I mean, I think my approach to this is like everybody else. We become very, very selective, you know, when we talk about bevacizumab in very old patients and probably don't use it as often as we use this agent in younger folks. What's your experience and perspective on this, Dennis? 
fairly the same. I look at the chronologic age. I don't know. It's actually something where Jerry and I talked about this morning. Is there an age above which or a physiologic age above which you would not use Bev because of all the comorbidities and the vasculopathies? And, you know, I must say I don't use it in folks over 80, almost under any circumstance, but then I have an open mind about it. I just sort of look at the patient and make an assessment as to the risk-benefit ratio of adding the Bev. It's sort of a continuous risk. Age is a continuous risk. And there's no one cutoff that I would look at. And I think physiologic age and comorbidities would help direct that decision-making. 